Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Franco Bejarano is an Atlanta artist and social worker who addresses societal issues and mental health through his artwork. He was selected by MARTA and Hope Atlanta for a public art project on homelessness during the pandemic. His installation of portrait Street to Home is on view at MARTA's Five Point Station. Later this hour, we'll hear how Franco Bejarano's involvement with social work and mental health led to his use of art as a form of intervention. First, the title of Mary Frances Early's new memoir, The Quiet Trailblazer, acknowledges that her name may not be famous. Nevertheless, her role in the civil rights movement is monumental. Mary Frances Early was the first black graduate of the University of Georgia, and she joins us now via phone to talk about her memoir. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. I am honored to be here. You write that you earned your graduate degree in music education at the University of Georgia in one of the most violent decades of our nation's history. How did you get there? Well, it's almost unbelievable because I was such a quiet person and I had always been a good student because my brother and I uh, had wonderful counsel from our parents, love and respect, and they taught us to to believe in ourselves and to do the best that we could because they didn't have the opportunity to go to college. And so they wanted us to, whatever the length of our potential was, they wanted us to reach it. And so they laid a good foundation. I call it roots. Well, the way I got there was I, I begin my autobiography talking about my childhood experiences because my formative years actually led me to becoming a civil rights activist. And I've been called an unlikely candidate because I was fairly quiet. I, I liked to talk, but I was not 
one who would would be in the front line of a civil rights movement. But I wanted to be. And I was in my fourth year of teaching and uh, saw on the television, little black and white television, with my mom, we were watching the evening news. I saw the riot that was happening at the University of Georgia, and we were horrified. I had known Charlene and Hamilton because the three of us actually went to Turner High School, which was the premier high school in Atlanta. This is Charlene Hunter, later Charlene Hunter-Galt, and Hamilton Holmes. Yes. I was so horrified that I had been going to, since I had finished college, after my first year of teaching, I went to Interlochen, which is a national music camp, because they had a division of the University of Michigan. And the following two summers, 59 and 60, I went to the University of Michigan. But I decided on that night when they were suspended, I said, that's not right. They can't do that. I'm going to transfer to the University of Georgia. And my mother looked at me and she said, are you sure? We just saw a riot there. It's too dangerous. And then she told me for the first time about the murders of four black people in Monroe, which was her hometown. She had never told me this before. And it was a horrific murder. And she said, that's why you shouldn't go, because it's dangerous. And I said, Mom, that happened 10 years ago. I was 10 years old when it happened. But I have to be on the active line. I have to do something about this, because these Jim Crow laws are not going to go away. And I can help. I can go to school. I can't march on the line with students, but I can go to school. And so I want to do it. And she finally gave me her her blessings. I can imagine how terrified she must have felt for you. In spite of the Jim Crow laws, your parents never taught you to hate, dislike, or disrespect white people. How difficult was that for you when experiencing indignity such as you write about attending a movie at the Fox Theater as a young girl with your brother? It was very difficult because I was young and I didn't understand why we had to drink the colored water and not the white water. I didn't see why because the water wasn't colored anyway. <laughs> I didn't understand why we couldn't go in the front door of the Fox Theater and why we had to climb up all the stairs. But they drilled that into us that it was the laws that we should hate and not people. Mm. Well, that takes a tremendous amount of grace, I think, although it is remarkable that you did not want to return to the Fox Theater for decades. And in fact, it was a performance by the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater that finally got you to go back to the Fox in the proper entrance, I might add. Yes. I was so happy to be able to do that. And I have been, of course, several times since. But I was really into my adulthood before I went back because that that just meant to me that we were not accepted. We were less than, and I didn't believe that because I'd been told by my parents that I was as good as anyone as long as I had the potential to do whatever. And so when I went back and saw the Alvin Ailey dance troupe, that was just 
Oh, it was such a blessing because at that time they had several different ethnicities, people dancing uh, before then, and it started out as an all-black troupe. But it was so inspirational, and it gave me hope for the future. Mm. And they have returned here, with the exception of 2020, every year since 1976. I, I know they consider Atlanta their second home. Yes. So you came from this wonderfully loving family, parents who instilled in you and your brother the importance of education from a very young age. Let's go back to some of those earlier years. Would you tell us about the beginning of your intellectual awakening with Ethiopia at the bar of justice? Yes. When I was growing up, my dad had a restaurant on Auburn Avenue, and it was right across the street from the Auburn Branch Library. And I went there every day. They paid me to stay out of the way. And I went there and I read and I read. <laughs> and I thought it was a great way to make money. Yeah. But I couldn't read a lot about history. I mean, I read black history. I read and read. And I guess I should say Negro history because that's what we were called then. But when our seventh grade teacher introduced Ethiopia at the Bar of Justice, she didn't tell us that the opposition was the white race and Ethiopia was the black. We had to get that knowledge ourselves. But Ethiopia was told by opposition that she had done nothing to make America great. And then uh, I was playing the part of mercy in the pageant, and I was the defense. And I called all of these people to sing the praises of Ethiopia, business, the church, women, the slaves, all of the people in the, the various wars, the 14th, 15th, and 16th Amendment. And that brought it all together for me. And I thought, oh, my God, we have contributed to America. And I, I was just so proud. It, it made a big impact on my life. How did attending Clark College help prepare you for your career? Clark College was a wonderful, I'm so glad that I went to an HBCU. I had gotten scholarships, offered scholarships at Spelman and at Smith College, but I didn't want to go to Smith because it was too far away. Plus, both Smith and Spelman were all female. I wanted a co-ed education. And I went to Clark because my band director had taken me there as a senior, and I played with the band, and I was so proud that I could play the clarinet uh, with the band. And I decided that was where I wanted to go. And it was a wonderful choice because I received a stellar education there. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Mary Frances Early about her memoir, The Quiet Trailblazer. My journey as the first black graduate of the University of Georgia. Now, your love for music began quite young. When did you first discover classical music? Oh, that's interesting. My father had gone to, to World War I, and I don't know where he was deployed, but it must have been somewhere in Europe, and he must have, been, he must have gone to some cultural events because he was the one 
who instilled within within me the love of classical music. We couldn't go to the Atlanta Symphony because it was segregated. And I wanted to go to a real concert, but I could not. And at that time, even the, the black students were not going as they did later on at a different time than the whites. So my, my dad had us sit down on Sunday evenings and we listened to the Bell Telephone Hour, which played classical music, like classical music. And I, I loved it. And I wanted to participate. I wanted to play in a band, but at that time I, I couldn't because my school, E.P. Johnson, did not have a band teacher. It was the first black school that was built for blacks. And it was a very poor school in terms of amenities. So I began taking piano lessons at the age of eight or nine. I think it was eight. And my piano teacher uh, was upstairs from the restaurant where we had a restaurant. I loved uh, taking piano. But after two years, I had to stop because the teacher, Dr. Byron, would wrap me on on my knuckles with a pencil when I made a mistake. <laughs> Not and, good. No. And so I decided I would have to stop. And my dad really was an amateur singer, and he wanted me to accompany him. But he didn't insist that I continue. He simply bought me a set of the International Library of Music, which includes a lot of music as well as theory and history and so on. But that was the beginning of my love for music. And in fact, you played piano, sang, you yes. played clarinet. You were multi-talented, and this revealed itself at a young age. Yes, it did. I really wanted to teach because I was so inspired by my band teacher at Turner High School. He was such a charismatic person, and he took a personal interest in me because I didn't start clarinet until the 11th grade. And that's really why. And I was a good piano player, but I knew I didn't want to perform. I wanted to teach because my mother had been a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse in Monroe, and she had been the top student in her 12th grade class. And so she was asked to take on that position because her teacher was pregnant and she couldn't continue to teach. So I wanted to be a teacher because I thought my mom and my band director, this is what I want to do, but I wanted to teach band. And the professor at Clark College, uh, the chair of the department said, that's not what ladies do. You should teach chorus. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, women's rights were not very evident at that time. And I said, well, maybe I can teach both. And I did. (laughs) Now, you write about visiting New York City, experiences such as being a counselor at a summer camp in the New York area and taking graduate classes from the University of Michigan, you mentioned earlier, when you would go up to Interlochen. And these accounts not only convey what rich experiences they provided you, but how liberating it was for you, Mary Frances, to be accepted as an equal among white people. You were surrounded by fellow music lovers, campers, camp counselors. It made me wonder why you didn't want to remain in the North. Why did you choose to stay in the South? 
I wanted to stay in the South because I was born in Atlanta. I was not a person who came from another place. I wanted to stay in the South because I wanted to see it get to the point where we could have could be on equal basis. I was when I went to New York after my 17th birthday. I was so liberated because we could go to the the library, the main library, we could go to the art museums. I mean, it was just a wonderful reawakening for me. And I said, I'm going to come back one day. And so I did go back to teach at this camp. And it was as though it, people didn't care what color you were. Now, I was, the, for the first year, the only black counselor. I did go back a second year, and there was another black counselor. But we were just friends. And that was so liberating. So I knew that it was possible for people to have good relationships and be of different races. And I wanted to see that happen in the South. And I wanted to be part of making it happen. You made a powerful statement early in your teaching career when you took students on a field trip to hear the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Would you please describe that event? Yes. I took my fifth, sixth, and seventh graders to the symphony. And at that time, the white students went in the morning and the, the black students or Negro students in the afternoon. When we went, I was aware because I had been sent a program that the students would be asked to stand at the beginning and sing a patriotic song. It didn't say which song. And so we went and we were sitting there in eager anticipation of listening to some beautiful music. And the conductor, who was Henry Sopkin at the time, asked the students to all stand, and we did. And then he began conducting the orchestra. And when I heard that it was Dixie, I told my students to sit down. And they didn't know how to sing it because I had never taught it to them. And they did. And when they sat down, all of the rest of these saw that we had sat, so everybody else sat down. And Henry Sopkin turned around while he was conducting and saw that we had sat. But he continued playing through to the end. But that was my, I guess, silent objection to the song because it was an offensive song then and it is still today. I was teaching my students without being, I guess, obnoxious that this was not something that they should appreciate. And shortly afterwards, my principal brought a box of books that were to supplement the music books that we had that were old to my room and I opened one of them and looked, and at the in, on the front page in the opening, there was a picture of Piccaninny children picking cotton, and the song that accompanied was Dixie. And I told him, we can't use we can't use this with our students. And he asked me, what do you want to do with them? And I said, well, take them out to the playground, which was just a dirt playground, and we'll burn it. We'll burn the whole box, and we did. I'm sure that was the only time in your life you wanted to burn books. Of course. <laughs> I love books. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Explain how you were, I'm quoting here, eventually accepted, but not welcome at the University of Georgia. Well, no, I was not accepted. It really got under my skin because the students would sit far away from you in class and not even acknowledge your presence. But in my first class, which was advanced music history, the first test that came up, 
was to be held before the, the 4th of July. But the rest of the students in the class, I wanted to go ahead and get it over with, but they wanted to wait. And so we waited until after the 4th. And I studied and studied. And I really enjoyed answering the questions. It was a an essay test and not a multiple choice. But I had thoroughly immersed myself in the questions and I answered them all. And when the professor returned the papers, he announced the fact that I had the highest grade in the class, which was an A. And the students looked at me. I mean, you see, at that time, I think the prevailing thought was that blacks could not compete academically with whites. And that's why schools should not be desegregated. And I wanted to prove that, but now I didn't know, of course, that I was going to get an A or that I would have the only A in class. But it was probably because I studied during the holidays and, and they didn't. But that changed. A lot of them, they would begin to talk with me in class, not outside of class. But that's, that sort of broke down the wall of people just, all of them just ignoring me. Oh, it is painful to read about how you were treated by other students, even by some faculty members at UGA, which, again, it just surprised me that you were even accepted. You were granted entrance at UGA, if you will, but you talked about the impact of that riot in 1961 when the undergraduates, Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes, were on campus and students just got ugly and out of hand. And you write that appearances on the national stage trumped the deep prejudices of local men of power for a moment. So that sort of surprised me because I thought about, well, but look at the horrors in Mississippi and Alabama that came in the next two years. And yet here in Georgia, they were willing to relent and grant you acceptance, although not acknowledging your credits from the University of Michigan, which was a much more <laughs> rigorous program. Yes, it was. That was insult to injury. But why do you suppose these bigoted local politicians even cared about the negative national news coverage? Well, you know, the University of Georgia is the oldest land-grant university. They had been severely criticized, even internationally, about the riot. And people don't understand that I was not admitted. It took them five months before they did, before they said I could come. They tried everything they could to keep me out. And so when Charlene and Hamilton entered, it didn't open the doors wide to everybody, not to me. There was an investigative report where they sought to find out if I had shoplifted or had an arrest or had an illegitimate child, just discussing things that I didn't even know about then. And I think it was May 10th of 1961 
there was a newspaper article written by Margaret Shannon. I don't know if you remember her, but she wrote this article saying that they held a high-level conference at the state capitol where the officials, and they had to be the legislators and the governor, reluctantly decided that they had to admit Miss Early based on her good teaching record and scholastic record, or that Judge Boodle would order them to admit me and perhaps issue an injunction. They didn't want that to happen because that would, again, bring shame to Georgia. So it wasn't that they wanted me there. I was not welcome. And during the summer of 61, I was the only black student on campus, which meant that any vitriol that they had to throw at a black student was directed toward me. But I did not let that deter me because I was determined that I was going to stay the course because I was self-selected. Nobody asked me to go. I made that decision myself. Mary Frances Early, author of The Quiet Trailblazer. Her memoir recounts her journey as the first black graduate of the University of Georgia. More of our conversation in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. If you are just tuning in, I've been speaking with Mary Frances Early, author of The Quiet Trailblazer, my journey as the first black graduate of the University of Georgia. Miss Early's memoir details some of the extreme acts of racism she endured. And here she explains how Dr. Martin Luther King helped her find strength. I started going to his church and he talked about all of these things. He talked about hate. He talked about love. And I got my strength each week that I went home. I got my strength from him to be able to go back and to take whatever. I mean, the only time I really retaliated was when I was they threw rocks at me going to the post office, and I threw one back. Yes, I love that. <laughs> I love that story. That sounds funny to say, but you please share with us your story about telling Dr. King about that incident. Yes, I went to his church the next weekend and I said I have erred. I said I threw a rock back because they hit me under my glasses and I was so irate and I am sorry and he said Mary Francis I would have done the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I did I not believe him 
But he was such a personable person, and he was so sincere in his conviction that all men and women could live together in peace. And I believed him, and I still do. Well, and to even joke that he would have done the same and then tell you, well, you're human. It was such gorgeous consolation for your being ashamed of not being nonviolent in your response. Well, I was thinking, I'm not that nonviolent, and I threw the rock back. I didn't hit anybody, but I mean, I was, I was angry. And, you know, it was a visceral, well, feeling, I guess. I just couldn't resist it. But I know that we should. But even today, I mean, this is the same thing. That's, it seems like we have done gone full circle and come back to the same kind of thing that happens today with people being killed and uh, assaulted. And it's just wrong. Oh, horrific. In a landmark ceremony in UGA, you became the first African-American to receive a degree from the University of Georgia. This was momentous, yet decades passed without acknowledgement of your achievements. Why were you under the radar from UGA and the media? I don't know. I don't know to this day, but I'll tell you what I think. It wasn't that I was just the first black to graduate from UGA. I was the first black to graduate from any of the so-called white colleges and universities in the Georgia university system. None of the other schools had integrated. I think Georgia Tech integrated the next year in 62 or 63. None of the schools throughout Georgia had integrated. And I think that this was their way of getting back at me uh, because, I mean, I was not even, the, the graduation was not even noted in the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution at that time until six weeks after it happened. And of course, my thing is, Lois, I did not go to the University of Georgia to become the first to graduate. That was furthest from my mind. I went to help desegregate. And you see, the first students who followed me were graduate students. They came the summer of 62, and one came the spring of 62 when I took a leave of absence from the Atlanta Public Schools. So, you know, teachers needed to have the, the security of knowing that they too could be accepted. So I wanted to be known and still want to be known as one who helped to desegregate. I'm proud of the fact that I was the first. It was a watershed moment when I got my degree, but I was swallowed up by all of those that were 600 plus graduating students, and they didn't even see me. They saw my, my family and friends because I had 74 people who came to celebrate with me, but uh, I was invisible, and so they hid it, but why, I don't know. Shameful. You continued postgraduate study as your rise to prominence in the Atlanta public school system was rapid. Mary Frances, that could be its own book, just <laughs> what you did for the Atlanta public schools curriculum, advanced music for all students. But I'm going to jump ahead. Because in addition to that, 
you have made a huge impact in the greater Atlanta music community, including the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Would you tell us, please, about your role in helping to initiate the ASO Talent Development Program? Yes, that was such a joy. I was working with Azita Hill and Mary Gramblin, and uh, we had a committee, and it was the Action Committee. And the Action Committee was supposed to level the playing field for black students or students of color to participate in the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra's youth orchestra. And because I was coordinator of music or director of music in the Atlanta public schools at the time, I played a major role in helping. I was co-president with Azita Hill in helping to develop that program, which has continued and has become a model for other orchestras across the nation. And I was so proud at the naming ceremony when a young woman named Zoe Williams played a Bach partita unaccompanied. It was it just brought joy to my soul because that was 1993, I think, when we started. And the program has grown exponentially since then. Yes. It was several decades before you returned to UGA. What can you tell us about reconciliation with the university beginning in 2012? Well, actually, I was discovered by Dr. Maurice Daniels in 1997. He discovered because Jesse Hill Jr., as well as Attorney Hollowell, told him he was doing a documentary on Horace Ward. And he was told that I was really the first black to get a degree. Dr. Daniels had been working at UGA, I don't know how long, but he had never heard my name. And so he called me to confirm it, and I told him, yes, that's true. And he he didn't just take my word for it. He did some research and substantiated the fact that I was indeed the first. And so I was invited back to campus to speak to the GAPS, the Graduate and Professional Scholars. And that night, they named the lecture, which is still going on today now after 20 years, in my honor. And I was given a proclamation from President Michael Adams, verifying the fact that I was the first to get a degree at the University of Georgia. And I felt so validated because I had pushed those those hurtful feelings back into the recesses of my mind and gone on in my career. But it still hurt to know that I was completely forgotten. So in 2012, there was a 50th anniversary commemorative event. You mentioned the lecture series. There was an endowed chair for you. And in 2019, a documentary, Mary Frances Early, The Quiet Trailblazer. In 2019, there was the ultimate honor. What went through your mind when you saw the building with Mary Frances Early College of Education emblazoned across the top. They named the College of Education for you at UGA. Oh, I can't even describe my feelings. 
I'm still awed by it because when I look at that building, you have to understand the building is really Adderhole Hall. O.C. Adderhole, Omar Clyde Adderhole, was the president when I went to UGA. He didn't want any black students there. I never met him, but I'm sure he must be turning over in his grave because his family, I think, wanted to know if, if his name had been taken off the building. It was not. My name was simply added above it. But I could never have dreamt when I graduated in 62 and when I went back to get my second degree and graduated in 67, I could never have imagined that I would have an honor that tremendous. It was just, it brought tears to my eyes. It was such a wonderful celebration. It was uh, February of 2020. They started it in 2019 because they had to raise a million dollars in order to get that done. And then it had to be approved by the Board of Regents. And I had a call. I was traveling in um, Ireland with my cousins who were acting as my vision helpers because I can't see very well. And we, I got a call on my cell phone. Well, actually, it was a text message. I can't read text messages. My cousin read it to me, and he said that on that very day, it was October 16th, the same day I graduated on the 16th, that the Board of Regents had just approved the naming of the Mary Frances Early College of Education. And we had a big celebration. I mean, I, I didn't believe they would raise a million dollars in my name, let alone what actually happened. They raised over three million. And it's such a rewarding thing because my whole career was in education. And I want so much. In fact, the, the royalties from my book are going to the College of Education and the Hodgson School of Music because I didn't write, I wrote it for historical purposes. And I wanted to be able to leave as my legacy a lasting tribute to students who are interested in education. And But it's a tremendous honor, and I could never have dreamt. And when they had the, the naming ceremony, there were over a thousand people in the Performing Arts Center at the Hodgson School of Music. And it was just, it was overwhelming when they unveiled, well, I helped the president to unveil President Jerry Moorhead has, is such a wonderful supporter and such a wonderful leader for University of Georgia, as was President Michael Adams, who was the first president to recognize me. And Jerry Moorhead has continued that, and even to a greater degree. More inclusion, more diversity, and I think we're on the right track to get more students. But, you know, Students nowadays don't want to go into education because of the pandemic and all of the pressures that are placed on teachers. And so I want to help make that happen to encourage students that education is a wonderful career. And people used to say, oh, she's just a teacher. But teachers are the ones who plan the nation because whatever comes out of them goes into the students. And they are the ones who make America great. I'd like to close with a quote from something Dr. King wrote to you when you received your degree in 1962. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King wrote, you have done a superb job and brought the state of Georgia closer to the American dream. Mary Frances Early, thank you so much for all the work you have done 
and for being the quiet trailblazer. Thank you, Lois. I have enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you very much. Mary Frances Early, author of The Quiet Trailblazer. She'll discuss her memoir via Zoom on Monday, January 10th, hosted by the Georgia Center for the Book. Additionally, in honor of the Martin Luther King holiday, Mary Frances Early will be in conversation with Hank Klibanoff at the Atlanta History Center on Monday, January 17th. More information is available on our website. Coming up, we'll hear about the intersection of public transportation, homelessness, and art. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Franco Barrano is an Atlanta artist and social worker who addresses societal issues and mental health through his artwork. He was selected by Marta and Hope Atlanta for a public art project on homelessness during the pandemic. His installation of Portrait Street to Home is on view at Marta's Five Point Station now. When Bear Honor visited City Lights via Zoom in September, he began by explaining how his involvement with social work and mental health led to his use of art as a form of intervention. It's been quite a journey, actually. From a very young age, I knew that I wanted to be an artist. I always had an affinity for drawing and painting. And I grew up with the story that I was going to be some famous artist or designer, you know, my whole life. And then, you know, time actually came to choose a major when I went to college. And then I was hit with the reality that I come from like a working class immigrant family where being an artist is not really a wise career choice. And at that point in my life, I didn't really know anyone who was a successful artist or creative. I didn't know how to get there. And I didn't even know if it was possible. And so choosing art felt like very much like a gamble that I wasn't really willing to take. And at the same time, I was, I was going through this existential crisis, looking for meaning. You know, like I knew I had technical skill to make beautiful things, but why? You know, what's, I didn't want to make art for the sake of making art. And so I decided to keep art to myself. It's always been a very intimate process for me. And I decided to go to school for clinical social work where I focused on community psychotherapy, which is just as fulfilling for me. And I would say that that truly is my, my true passion, mental health. And so after grad school, I started working for a nonprofit here in Atlanta by the name of In-Town Collaborative Ministries, working for their homeless outreach program. We would engage people experiencing homelessness in the streets and then kind of case manage them and coordinate housing through the city of Atlanta. 
And that that's still my job up to this day. We kind of have grown exponentially since then. I remember one day I was housing one of my clients. He had been homeless living outside for 10 years. And we had been working together for a whole year. So we had this whole relationship, this whole dynamic. And here he was, you know, like moving in just like, a, like any regular day. And no one was around to see it. And that's when I realized like, wow, this, this moment is quite monumental and people need to see this. You know, people need to see that you can be homeless for 10 years and still rebuild your life. Even when you're at the end of your rope, there's still hope. And so I thought, how can I, how can I commemorate this person's story of resiliency and perseverance in a way that is dignifying? And so, you know, I said, I have some time. Why not do a portrait? Why not do a life-size portrait? I didn't really know how they, were, how they were going to turn out. I never had done realism in my work before. Uh, but to my own surprise, they, they were pretty good. And so one portrait turned into two portraits, and then three, and then four. And then before I knew it, I had a whole Instagram account dedicated to that matter. And, and the response has been pretty spectacular. I've done a few other things from the intersection of art and mental health. In 2018, I illustrated and wrote a children's book that tackles clinical depression. And I crowdfunded the money to publish it and distribute it among different agencies here in the city. And I also do some contract work as an art therapist with different agencies around town. But I would say the portraits are the bulk of my work. How does your background in social work inform your style? in terms of the portrait. I mean, one could say, well, you could just as easily take a photograph of this person moving into a permanent home for the first time in 10 years. But how does that combination of your interest in the humanity of what you're doing come out on the canvas? I would say that uh, as a social worker and as a mental health practitioner, my interest is not really the style or the result of the artwork. It's really about the process and, and the change that it brings forward. You know, when I'm, when I'm working with my clients and I ask them, hey, can I take your portrait? Can I do your portrait? It becomes like a life-changing experience for them because you know, how many people experiencing homelessness can say that, that they had a life-size portrait done? I don't think many. I think it brings a, a sense of dignity to someone that is not used to being dignified in society. I wouldn't say that I've, it, uh, it changes the style. My interest is really in, in the change that it can instill in people. Marta has been a place of refuge for unsheltered individuals, especially during the pandemic. What COVID-related transit challenge will you address in this artwork? Right, so, so part of this project, so this is the Arts and Transportation Rapid Response, and it's a national initiative really meant to give public transportation agencies a chance to address challenges uh, that have resurfaced as a result of the pandemic. And so the challenge that Marta wants to address is homelessness, which I think it's, it's a very delicate and yet complex matter to discuss in public art, I think. I think homelessness and public transportation have a long history of intersecting each other. But because of the pandemic, there has been a significant increase in individuals riding the trains, using them as shelter. 
as a result of, you know, A, more people becoming homeless and B, like places shutting down that would otherwise be used as shelter, like public libraries. And so I think MARA has really positioned itself as an agency that wants to help homelessness. I think last year, I think it was late 2020, they partnered with Hope Atlanta to create a homeless outreach team dedicated to working within the MARTA system exclusively. And so part of the process is that I, as the artist, will shadow the MARTA Hope team to get an understanding of the population we're working with and really have a chance to listen to some of the voices that I want to highlight from my art. I wondered how you felt when you found out you were awarded this project by the Atlanta City Council. It was actually quite a shock. It was organized through my job uh, at Intan Collaborative Ministries. I was supposed to be walking in for a meeting, so I thought, and then I actually walked into like a party with my family and friends and coworkers and colleagues from other agencies. It, it was truly, it was truly an honor. I, I think I, I have been doing this work for so long. I think, well, it's only really been four years, but there, not a lot of people stay long-term in homeless services, I believe. And so by virtue of being working within the system for so long, I have housed a quite a high number of people experiencing homelessness. And I guess my, my job thought I was deserving of being recognized and, and I'm very happy they did. I can imagine. Franco, would you talk a bit about using art therapy yeah, so I don't think that people really understand what art therapy is. Uh, it's a very mystified subject. A lot of people think that if you are an artist, then you can do art therapy by by virtue of working with individuals. But I, art therapy really is a mix of art and, and psychotherapy. So it's really exploring feelings through the medium of art. And I think it works best for people who perhaps are not used to regular therapy, who are not able to talk their feelings out. There's such a power in art that enables you to release emotions and let go of things that you have been bottling up. Franco, what message would you like martyr writers to take away from your work? I've been thinking about this for quite a long time. And I think when sometimes when homelessness is portrayed in art or advertisement or TV, and it's usually directed to the general public, in order to invoke a feeling of compassion, it, it portrays people in a way that if you're experiencing homelessness yourself, it most likely doesn't make you feel great. And so I think part of why someone experiencing homelessness might seek shelter in Marta is because they want to seek a sense of normalcy. You know, they're taking the train just like you and me. They want to be anonymous when riding the train just like you are when you're commuting home and maybe you're listening to music or reading a book. Except that, you know, that person really has nowhere to go. And so there, there are a few things here, you know, I think for the general public, I want them to take away a sense that homelessness does not look the way that you have been conditioned to think it looks like. That quote unquote normal person sitting next to you they could have no place to sleep tonight and, and you would never think about it. I think at the same time, I think if you're experiencing homelessness and you're looking at this art, I want them to know that there is hope and that there are resources and that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and this is not the end for you. I think there's, there's a tremendous amount of resiliency in, in this population that 
needs to be celebrated and, and displayed and, and it has huge potential for self-actualization. Artist and social worker Franco Bearamo, his installation of portraits, Street to Home, is on view at MARTA's Five Point Station. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., the artist behind Atlanta's new public sculpture titled Conversation Piece, spelled P-E-A-C-E, on view at the corner of Peachtree and 10th Streets. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.